Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, where we discuss integrating primitive virtues into the context of a modern world. Thanks for joining us today on the Therapy of All podcast. My name is Ken Knight, and tonight I have a special guest, Chinme Arate, a doctoral candidate in experimental psychology at Oakland University. He's published work related to evolutionary psychology, specifically mating preferences, parent-child attachment, and the evolutionary role in decision-making. So that's my little blur, but Chinme, thank you for joining us tonight, and if you could... Um, Say a little bit about yourself to sort of set the stage for what our listeners can expect. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's great to be here. Thanks, uh, Ken, for inviting me. Um, uh, to expand on, I think, what you what you introduced me as, I mean, essentially I'm just basically those things. Uh, other than that, I have some experience in, in the clinical uh, side of things. I, I completed my master's in clinical psychology, and I did some internship work, and I think... That's, that's really kind of uh, why we have so many things in common to talk about today. Sure. So, and this is unique. Usually I'm the one asking questions, but you came in with some things you wanted to know as well, and I'm more than happy to talk. So um, what questions do you have for me specifically or for this podcast specifically before we go on? Uh, I guess in general I'm kind of interested in... Um, you know, looking at, uh, you know, some of your work and, and I kind of just grazed over some of the uh, podcast website uh, articles and stuff that you've written. So I was just interested in sort of knowing how you got where you are in your thinking and uh, uh, in some of your sort of, you know, just like milestones in life that got you here. Sure. Uh, you know, there's two sort of facets to this podcast. One is to get people who are experts, um, such as yourself, but also there's the element, and, I don't, and this may well apply to you as well, to get people who may not have a lot of technical knowledge or formal training on a topic, but who have applied the principles and seen results, right? I call that a uh, living laboratory. Right, and, right. And I would say I was a, and, you know, the danger of only having one perspective over the other is you get a limited field. With the expert only, you'll get a sort of cold, distant, but precise understanding. But with a laboratory, you'll get the sort of motivation piece, too. And I would say that I've had a little bit of anecdotal experience before I had any formal training. And I see. To, to speak to that, I did some time, um, I did two years in Iraq, and that sort, of, that sort of showed me, I did work with some of the tribes in Al-Anbar province, and that sort of showed me that even in the midst of warfare, in the midst of difficulty, that there were some social virtues and some mentality uh, pieces that really allowed these people to thrive even in extremely challenging environments. And I, I, see, yeah. and I yeah. certainly came to admire that early on. Um, and at that point, I'd only had a bachelor's level of education, very little bit uh, related to psychology. It was just sort of an early spark of interest of what is it with these people that have harder lifestyles or more primitive lifestyles that allow them to be so resilient and versatile, right? Mm. And moving on a little bit, after the military, I, I took up a brief career as a professional kickboxer in southern Thailand um, okay. with Suit Muay Thai Gym. And there I had some friends who were part of the Isarn Hill Tribe, um, 
in Thailand. And again, the same trend, right? Extremely good physical condition, very positive outlook on life, um, minimal reactions to um, life stressors, things that very often people in industrial societies would collapse over, you know? Still, yeah. still anecdotal evidence. And then uh, further, part of the way through my master's program, I did some time in southeast Ecuador in the Amazon with the Shuar tribe, and I helped give them some um, informal military training to deal with the Mirador mining conflict that was happening there. And uh, even more so, having spent a good amount of time there, actually living in their environment, um, their lifestyle, their mentality, their perspective, their sort of use of exercise mixed with an understanding of natural plants with their um, psychedelic rituals, these sorts of things, it all sort of, I've started to see a common thread, right? Like, the more... um, engaged in physicality and connected to, and I don't want to say nature in the sense of parks and, you know, and tie-dye, I'm saying nature in the sense of actual hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Um, Those things really seem to connect to create um, a sort of mentality that I've come to admire. See, I mean, uh, I guess it's obvious that you've had very interesting life experiences and, uh, you know, I think you have a very interesting uh, vantage point, honestly, towards these things because uh, not a lot of people have so many different uh, experiences that uh, they can, you know, digest to think about uh, psychology. So I think this will be a very interesting conversation. Sure. And I'm extremely excited um, to get your insider expertise. Up till now, you know, I've searched through the National Institute of Health, I've searched through National Institute of Mental Health, but there's only so much, and this is sort of a problem too in society, there's only so much... um, scholarly information, as much of it that is available, that's only a fraction of what's hidden behind a paywall or a specific membership, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, that's a very common problem, Uh, you know, the access to scientific literature. Uh, It's a problem. It's getting better over the last, like, three or four years. Um, You know, we have things like ResearchGate and Academia.edu where researchers uh, can share their work with the public. Uh, but there's still, I, I can still see there's large gaps between access to scientific literature. Sure. So and, and certainly the, the training, I, I just got you off, sorry about that, but certainly the training involved in learning how to navigate those 30, 40, 50 plus page articles and find the two, the two paragraphs of valuable conclusions at the end, right? Yes. You know, it's, uh, if someone were to you, actually, yeah. Yeah, what you described is, uh, is essentially the graduate research training that uh, students get to be able to read a lot of papers and identify, you know, and and it's really hard to describe it. Um, You just kind of have to develop a sense of it after reading many, many papers. Sure. So, yeah. And and I guess that's part of my um, motivation to do this podcast is to get actionable information based on good science to the degree that we can out to people who can use it. I see. Yeah, well, I mean... First, I think I would like to clarify to your audience that, that I would not qualify as an expert in any way. No expert uh, ever says they are. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's there are a lot of other people who know much more about these things than I do. Uh, I, you know, I'm still a student, and I just like to read about these things, so uh, I'm just here to share my uh, you know thoughts on this issue. Sure, and we're happy to yeah. have them. You know. Absolutely. Great. So uh, that's sort of the 
how I came to be interested in this stuff. And, you know, where I would say, one thing that I would say, too, is, like, you have to be extremely careful when you have an interest in something that's become very popular because it's very easy to become dogmatic or to follow extremes or to get wrapped up in a community that's maybe taken it way out of scientific legitimacy. And that's not to insult these interest groups, but when you take something like paleo diets or uh, something like that, there's sort of a reaction you have, at least I have, when when I see that level of... Uh, marketing and community organizing and turning it into your identity. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, about that kind of stuff when you see people that maybe don't quite have the background fully developed but really cling to something? Yeah, I mean, actually, I I have this conversation, you know, much more often with people than than what is I think uh, expected, um, and I think. So there's like different levels of uh, dogmatism and even within the scientific community you would be surprised. It wouldn't it would not be very difficult for you to, to go to a conference and talk to a very experienced um, you know, professor who is very dogmatic about some of his or her um, perspectives. Sure. Or ideas. And and it's really hard. I mean this is the this is the I think the value of science as a research field is essentially to counter this very uh, primitive instinct that we all have to believe in things sure. um, to to the best of our understanding of evidence and things like that and without and so the example of professors uh, the reason I gave that example is because these are the people who are in the top one percent of society in terms of their training and understanding of, of how science works. Sure. And, you know, all of the nitty-gritties of how it, uh, how we are fooled by our very naive understanding of patterns and, you know, our memories and things like that. So these are the people who have the most training in countering those things, and even they fall for this. So you can only imagine how easy it is for, you know, uh, just normal people. It, it, it just, the skepticism... And evidence-based thinking is just something that, that is unnatural to human beings, let's say that. Sure. And uh, I think that's the same issue. And, of course, when you go on to uh, other other folks who don't necessarily have formal training in science, and, uh, you know, they're just doing basically what we're just pro- doing, what we program to do, right? Uh, we believe in things, we think that one idea is better, and then everything in our mind is designed to, uh, you know, we've evolved to maintain our status quo, maintain our belief. So we have things like, uh, you know, biases and, uh, you know, errors that we make in thinking and all that stuff. I mean, all that is evidence that we, that this is a very difficult process. So that's, that's how I look at it. So it's, it's, it's one of, it's one of the examples, I think, of that mental machinery. Sure, and you mentioned mental machinery, and that's sort of a perspective I take in a clinical practice where, you know, the reigning doctrine of, like, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of swept over and dominated the, the paradigm, largely as much due to funding as validity, um, has this, it's created this focus in clinical work on identifying cognitive distortions or irrational beliefs and working on those, Yet, 
with that, you don't hit that sort of limbic system or, you know, emotional attachment to the distorted ideas, right? And I think that's really a value of being mindful is where you can sort of let that have its space and identify its origins and break it apart slowly with yeah. open monitoring, right? Yeah. So you were saying that the, the, that the uh, if I understand you correctly, you were saying that it's uh, in the literature in the paradigm, there they appear to be sort of stuck at the cognitive level, and that they're not really looking beyond that. Well, um, that's would be the if it was taken to the utmost extreme. Most counselors, in all reality, probably have a combination of three to four theories they pick from and form their own integrative set. I see. So it's less of a concern that way, but. The reigning idea of attacking the cognition first, that's an aggressive term, but working on the cognition first to get the emotional health results you're seeking, I, you know, I don't like that, and mindfulness-based practices and research showing that, and um, the acceptance and commitment therapy models kind of show that you get results when you calm the amygdala first, right? Because we all know that if you're super stressed out, knowing something doesn't change your emotional state about that thing, right? Yeah. So I would really, whether it's, and mindfulness is by no means the only way, but some means of addressing that uh, panic and fear and anxiety response first, and then once you've achieved that sort of homeostasis, then start to really dive into the cognitions, you know, is how I would I see. It. I see. That's an interesting approach. Uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, even associated with the clinical field anymore. Much, much less of a practitioner. So, I don't. I'm not really aware of, uh, you know, what's going on in the clinical field. But this, this sounds like a very interesting path. I think. Sure. And I can only, you know, I can only speak to the particular articles I've read, and the particular mm. results I've gotten in practice. But again, mm. you know, the thing about this, and one aspect that's so confusing about science for people is, you can have such conflicting information based on the interests of the people doing the research, yeah, the, num the yeah. conditions that are set up, and all the little variables measured or tweaked or the significance levels kind of altered or whatever. And that's not to yeah. say it's dishonest research. It just looks at it from different angles for different people under different contexts. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, that is that, that problem is surfacing, uh, you know, very often in, in the recent past across, you know, journalists and, and analysts and researchers. I mean, they're all digging into um, social science literature and they're finding all kinds of problems. And and uh, that's not to say that it's that the research is invalid uh, or, or anything like that, but I completely get the, some of the frustrating uh, points about that. Sure. Yeah. So let me ask just in general, Chinmay, um, with the field of evolutionary psychology... What's sort of the, how you would tell listeners, like, the most relevant reasons to get to know this topic? I see. Um, I think the, the way that I see it now, and, you know, I've kind of been involved in evolutionary psychology formally and informally for, you know, over maybe, like, six years or so, more than that. And I think the most interesting part as a, as a non-researcher, non-scientist about evolutionary psychology uh, from my perspective, which is how it can be 
useful and how it can be interesting in order to understand behavior. From that perspective, I think the most useful uh, thing for people is um, is the fact that we somehow, somewhere, we realize that human beings are animals. But we, we haven't really had a framework for a very long time in behavioral science in order to put those things together, which is the, the observable behavior that we have and the theoretical understanding of that behavior and the sort of intuitive notion that we are animals. Sure. And what evolutionary psychology has done for the first time is that it has at least created an idea that can that is fertile enough to be argued against or for and can serve as a framework for new research hypotheses and new research uh, ideas that can be tested. Some of them are being tested. Uh, I don't think as, as well as they can be, but in the future at least they can be tested. Um, and, and we can answer those questions and gain a better understanding of the human behavior, observational behavior, uh, and the theory in a broader framework of, uh, of animal and instinct. So that's, that's why I think it's so interesting for people. Uh, I, I see uh, you know, regularly on social media that conversations about evolution, evolution psychology get a lot of attention. Uh, you know, that's, it's not always positive attention. There's a lot of, you know, other issues and stigmas attached to that. But at least the, the, the level at which it creates uh, a te- this uh, sort of magnetism around it, I think it's related to this fact that we all kind of realize somewhere that we are uh, animals, but this is a paradigm that is interesting enough for both researchers and non-researchers to talk about. Certainly. And, you know, I look at it like, the allied fields of evolutionary psychology to me would be, you know, anthropology plays a role mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. Um, a, a biologist would play a role. A physician would play a role. Um, even like social civic planners could take note about sort of the way things used to be and what we're designed to respond to. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So I like that there's this intersectionality of all these sciences that come together under this macro theory. Yeah, I mean, I think the the application of uh, you know evolutionary principles is is really an interesting subject because you know I think we are still in that stage in evolutionary ecology and in behavioral science where we are just sort of you know climbing up the tree, just sort of beginning to climb up the tree uh, in terms of understanding what's actually going on and what are the consistent uh, principles. You know, which explain a lot of different observable behaviors and things like that. So we're still kind of uh, beginning on that journey. So I think it's always interesting how uh, these big ideas in psychology may, may, you know, may it be sort of stuff like ego and superego and personality theory and social, you know, behavior. All of these things I know that are they are very quickly adopted into uh, applicable. Uh, insights so, by marketers, by business people, by you know some of them even by doctors, and so it's it's kind of interesting how evolution psychology will fulfill that demand, yeah. um, and it's, it's that's why I think it creates such a uh, powerful impact when something comes out of the evolutionary literature. Sure, and there's this wonderful uh, difference too, where instead of having to take some. Um some old white guy's word for something being true in the case of, like, Freud, right? 
You know, it's like, well, there's an id, an ego, and a superego because I said so, and I have glasses, and you're on my couch. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. now it's like, well, these ideas could be observed and measured with electrodes, with blood samples, with brain scans to some degree. Yeah. Now. yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting thing, and this is, I think, uh, uh, this is something I talk to my uh, students about when I teach classes at the university. Uh, it's a lot of the modern psychology textbooks, um, you know, talk about sort of Freud and, you know, all that sort of psychoanalysis and they kind of brush over. And I think the interesting thing for me is as a researcher and somebody who's just curious about these societal phenomena of how science is, uh, you know, accepted into broader uh, knowledge, the interesting thing for me is that if you actually look at like Freud's writings and the the prevailing literature at the time, he was basically speaking to the uh, the audiences to the level of evidence that was acceptable to sure. them. Yeah. Right. So when he said that here's uh, you know here's observations and and I'm not just a philosopher, right? He was not just a philosopher, even though we think that he was mostly just philosophizing. But if you, if he compares himself to the people who were previously uh, before him. Uh, he would say that I'm actually basing my uh, insight on observations sure. of patients, and you can. And he would probably tell you that you know you could see some of that evidence when you talk to people. And the reason why you see this is because X Y Z theory, and that kind of seemed to work at the time. And it's interesting to me how that changes over time. And now we seem to be, you know, more focused. Obviously, it's more rigorous now, and you know, I like where it's going. But at the same time, if you're in the research community, you can kind of see the, the you know, the gaps in in the arguments and the testing and the hypotheses. And, and you can see, okay, these are the gaps that are going to be filled by future research methods and techniques and technology that we develop. So it's, it's always, that's kind of interesting. I mean, and the only reason I mention that is uh, if we kind of get into uh, this shell of saying like, oh, that, that was Freud and he was just, you know, talking about stuff that he didn't really measure, and now we're measuring things, It may we may be making the same mistake again sometimes, because Certainly. this evidence-gaining, yeah. measurement-gaining mechanism is also going to change, right? And it is changing, and it is actually overdue, sure. uh, in, especially in psychology. So I'm kind of interested in how that changes over time and how that improves our knowledge. Oh, certainly. This, assuming we don't do something horrible to ourselves as a species, in 100 years from now... Uh, people might be like scanning through their nanites and going, what were they thinking? They were like <laughs> butchers, not surgeons, you know? Absolutely. I think that's very likely. Sure. So yeah. you mentioned some gaps in the knowledge. So I'm, I'm curious if you could expand on that a little bit more. And then with that, maybe how that doesn't line up with some of the misconceptions people might have about this field. Uh, yeah. So that's an interesting question. So, uh, I think, so my, my view, and this is just my view, I mean, obviously you'll find people of different views, and I've had conversations with many people who are involved in evolution psychology, and, you know, depending on their own sort of framework that they work in, and the ideas that appeal to them, and things like that, these change, so I'm, I'm, I'm not pretending to be sort of neutral or unbiased to the situation, but um, I think the idea of evolution psychology, the theoretical concept of evolution psychology, currently is more powerful and more interesting than the actual uh, evidence that the, the sum total evidence that we have gathered. That's not to say that there is no sum total evidence. There is definitely interesting things out there. 
But the idea of evolution ecology uh, is so powerful that I think sometimes it overshadows what is actually told in by the by, to an objective observer uh, in in terms of research. So, for example, uh, some of the if you look at the research that is done in evolution psychology, you know, the, first let me start by saying that the, the theoretical concept behind evolution psychology, at least as far as I can see in, in my classes and the conversations that I've had at conference and things like that, the very fundamental concept that I think appeals to most people who choose to go on, on the research path in evolution psychology is this idea put, put up by, you know, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, um, at UCSB in, I think, 1992, they published a book called The Adapted Mind. And that's one of the seminal works uh, in evolution psychology. And they had this very powerful argument, which uh, spoke to the audience at the time, which was mostly uh, aware of the social psych- psychology or uh, social science paradigm, uh, which they call the standard social science model, which is that, you know, if you look at human behavior, there's a lot of culture involved and there's mostly, you know, things that we learn or things that we just pick up on our way. And that's basically the crux of how behavior emerges. And what they argued was that there is a, there is a hierarchy in scientific knowledge in terms of uh, a broader understanding of things. So that, for example, if you discover a principle in, in biology or chemistry, you cannot violate a principle that is established in physics, right, or established in mathematics. Certainly, you know. So, so that, so they, what, what they basically said is, if psychology agrees that you know we are sort of a subfield of biology, uh, you know, in, to some extent, then you cannot say that what you know in psychology as a principle, it, it cannot contradict or conflict with what you know in biology. Certainly. Right? Because you're a subfield. And that, is, that was a very powerful argument, very logically derived, very eloquently put forth in that book. And so basically, you know, to summarize it, it basically says that you cannot violate a principle in, in biology if, you're, if you are studying psychology. And the, the biggest principle in, in biology is evolution, natural, by natural selection. And so that you know, led to the, the, the following, uh, you know, resurgence of, like, of human behavior in the, in the paradigm of evolution, natural selection, and all the broader principles and how they apply to human behavior and how they explain other animal behavior and things like that. So this is the theoretical concept that, that basically human behavior has to fit in the paradigm of, uh, or the principle of evolution by natural selection. And it's a very powerful idea. Sure. And at that, at that, at that piece at which you said it, at that level, it, it holds water to my observation that, yes, that would make sense that if we follow the rules of biology, we can start there as a guide. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's why it's so powerful. So anytime, in, in a lot of the classes that I've been in, you know, a lot of other colleagues, the sort of graduate students that I've had, a lot of times if you challenge something that, uh, you know, just from a research methodology perspective or a... Uh, you know, fundamental sort of scientific literature methods perspective. If you challenge something, it kind of they kind of reference that principle of Toby and Cosmides. If your conclusion at any point is is that, or your your interpretation of the results is that, you know, this could be explained by a some theoretical principle, 
they think that as long as the theoretical principle, uh, or sorry, they think that that theoretical principle with which you're explaining the behavior has to fit into an evolutionary paradigm. Now, theoretically, that's, I, I, I don't have objections to that, but it doesn't have to be an immediate evolutionary paradigm in the sense that, uh, you know, you don't have to go from observing behavior to a biological principle. Sure. There can, there can be many other mechanisms, uh, you know, in between those two uh, things that we agree on, which explain the behavior, right? So decision-making, for example, is an interesting topic for that, which is that in decision-making, uh, you could say that people make a certain error uh, in decision-making systematically, uh, you know, like, you know, Bayesian uh, estimations or things like that. And you could say that that's very relevant from a, from a evolutionary perspective and that's interesting and things like that. But it could be a, a very cognitive system, a uh, very fundamentally cognitive system uh, in the mind that produces this decision sure. instead of it actually coming down all the way because of evolutionary and more, more than that, adaptive or maladaptive reasons. And you know, so somebody I, could, sorry to cut you off, somebody could make the distinction that if you have a thought and you're cracking ATP apart to create an electrical spark to bounce from one part of your brain to another, then everything a human being does is therefore biological. And you could make that argument. Absolutely. The best counter-argument I've heard to that is that if that were the case and we were entirely determined by our biology and things like that, then people without any otherwise known pathology, how are they able to then actively work against their own survival when there's not a direct benefit to, um, you know, their genetic line or even their own species. Mm, yeah. So th that's, a, again, I mean, there's there's very, very interesting points here. I mean, so there's a lot of actually interesting adaptations that animals seem to have, by the way. just This is just a, you know, side point. Sure. That seem to violate this logic, which is that, uh, you know, why would you act in a certain way that would reduce your reduce your genetic representation in future generations or your genetic fitness for lack of a better word um, and it's interesting that that is actually uh, a very common behavior because um, you, you never know what the, the adaptation could be for sure and then there's also that you know? not all mutations are beneficial uh, the vast majority exactly. of them as a matter of fact right you know, absolutely. So there's a lot of, you know, like the peacock issue here is, is something that has been, that has been spoken uh, since Darwin's time, which is that the peacock's feathers are actually very expensive. Uh, it's, it's very costly for the peacock to have that feather, the, the, the bush, the feathers, and, uh, you know, it, it makes it more uh, vulnerable to predation, and it's not really particularly helpful in any way other than uh, attracting mates. And so, essentially, you can, it's a mathematical sort of case that, yes, you can reduce your chances of survival from predators, but if it's attractive to uh, the, the the females in your, in this case, in Peacock's case, to the female, then you will still leave more copies. So it's kind of, the, the natural selection network of concepts is very, uh, sometimes very counterintuitive. You have to really kind of dig in deep to understand the logic of that, even even though on the face of it might sometimes be, uh, it might seem illogical or inconsistent. Could you talk to us a little bit about sort of the difference or differences and similarities between, say, um, I guess you would call it adaptation, uh, sexual selection, and just genetic noise? Something that allows you to survive 
or ad by adapting to the environmental pressures. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, this is this is a rough definition because you'll have to go into details, details on that. But essentially, adaptations are things like, you know, um, a particular kind of uh, eye that, that has evolved uh, or a particular kind of uh, structure of a limb that has evolved. And it's, and it's adapted because... Uh, it's adapted because it allows you to uh, perform tasks. Uh, the opposable thumb is an adaptation because it allows you to perform tasks in a way that, in a way that uh, increases your genetic fitness. Sure. Uh, in, in the future generation, so that's kind of roughly what, what we talk about adaptations. And the idea in evolution psychology, which is I think interesting, is adaptations are not just uh, physical. So adaptations can also be behavioral mechanisms which is, you know, the things like aggression and violence and things like that. So they're adaptive in a certain set of situations, just just like uh, your liver is adapted to uh, cleansing the toxin, toxins that you would otherwise uh, would, would otherwise kill you if you ingested plants, sure. uh, vegetables. So this is the same sort of paradigm that evolution psychology uh, tries to use for behavioral models. And I think the, your other question was about sexual selection. Versus, like, noise, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I think, are you, are you, uh, do you mean this, do you mean to ask the, uh, the behaviors that are not adaptations, or do they seem like adaptations? Or, yeah, or like, uh, sort of like, how do you, you know, I know that you, you've explained adaptations, and I know that it is possible, say in the case of the peacock, where it was specifically sexual selection that made those traits desirable, even with mm. a disadvantage, as far as adaptation is concerned. Right. And then people also ask the question, well, how do traits get through that don't help you select a mate or, or uh, perform a function better, you know? I see. Do you, do you have examples in mind? So, um, sure. Yeah. Let's say, um, and I'll, so let's say sexual selection, we know that, um, you know, having darker manes and lions or larger feathers and peacocks will help you obtain a mate, but either are detrimental or irrelevant to individual survival, right? Hmm, right. And, th and then you might have some traits where they don't seem to matter at all, um, either hmm. to the mate or to the performance of behavior. And that, hmm. might, that might be if you, um, whether or not you have... 10 freckles or 20 freckles or something, right? It's just sort of I something see. that got through. Right, right, I see. Yeah, so those are interesting cases. I mean, there's a lot of different, I think, explanations for, uh, you know, what, if you wanted to explain, like, all the traits uh, in terms of an evolution paradigm, that there was issues that you would run into. And I think that's, that's one of these things is, you know, not everything is an adaptation, and, and uh, we have to be careful about... Um, calling something an adaptation and the carefulness here is represented in terms of evidence sure so if you say that this is an adaptation you know you would have to make a case of why it's an adaptation and some of these things are really difficult and that's why i think uh instead of you know really getting into the details of how you can find evidence people just run and say well this seems logical enough that it could be an adaptation sure now, that's how any good research begins, or some good research begins, by saying, this seems plausible, let's look into it. Right, exactly. Absolutely. But to take yeah. it as fact, without further investigation, is a little problematic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult problem. Some of these things are a problem, and, and especially in this type of a field where it's very 
uh, controversial. A lot of things are controversial. If you wanted to study, you know, something like, uh, you know, is is race an adaptation, or is the color of your, uh, or is the, is your facial features by race an adaptation towards something? Uh, that would be, you know, I don't think any IRB board would would approve that research. So unfortunately, then you kind of get in a situation where, you know, do you say something about it or do you not? And uh, you know, researchers. Sometimes they might just talk about things interestingly, and some journalist picks it up and publishes it, and that creates a controversy. Mm-hmm. So it's that's a tricky issue. But um, in terms of the actual definition of adaptations, I think that calling something an adaptation out of pure logic is is uh, dangerous. So sure. I think we should. It's interesting for a conversation, but if you actually want to classify something as an adaptation, then you need much more evidence for it than just logical inference. Certainly. I mean, every dogma that exists had a context in which it seemed logical to some Yes, time, absolutely. Right? Perfect. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You know, that's absolutely. interesting. You know, uh, thanks for expanding on that a little bit. I have one question that comes up from this that, makes, that I'm really curious about, and I actually haven't had any luck uh, digging into this. Uh, are you familiar with sort of the um, idea of adaptive mutations as opposed to random mutations? Uh, I have heard of it a few times, yeah. So I'm curious about your take on this. Um, as I read through some Evopsych textbooks and some literature, a lot of it seemed to be based on the idea that random mutations drive change. Uh, that yes. is to say that the giraffe doesn't actively stretch its neck and its baby has a longer neck, right? Um mm-hmm. And yet, if you look at, like, John Cairns, or you look at, like, the yeast studies or whatever, um, some organisms have been able to display through epigenetic expression um, very quick adaptations to the environment, which, of course, isn't to say that someone had a thought and then changed their, their epigenetics to, you know, become more heat-adapted or change their skin color or uh, grow a sixth thumb or whatever, you know. Um, but what do you think about the probability, or if you had to, you know, Say when you're guessing, of course, but if you had to guess, are you more in the camp of the majority of change was driven by random mutation or adaptive mutation, perhaps? I think in terms of evidence, I would say that there's more evidence that, um, at least in, in terms of if you just know, count by the number of species in which you know this exists, I would say that in most cases, because random mutation has been an older uh, you know, model, in, in evolutionary and genetic uh, research, I think the evidence would be more for random mutation. Purely, I think, right now, at least without, you know, I don't really have a deep understanding of the genetic mechanisms and the mutation mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. But I would say that just from a macro level, from what I was taught in my evolutionary biology class and some of the other readings that I've done, I think the random mutation part is... Is, it has more evidence right now, and it may it may be that in the future we find a mechanism that uh, basically leads us to to a realization that the adaptive mutations themselves were some kind of adapt uh, adaptation uh, within a genetic framework that allowed them. So, uh, if the genes, if if the if the trait is uh, X Y Z. Uh, and if your genes are able to produce this kind of trait, then those traits, uh, you know, work better in the environment uh, in, the, in terms of their flexibility or their sensitivity to the environment and so on. 
So it, it, it could be anything. Uh, I, I'm not really too well informed on these things to go more than that, but that's, sure. that's just what I'm thinking right now. Yeah, at this point, it's just curiosity, because I could see both sides, you know, like, um, I don't know the numbers, but I remember that, it, um, from what I've heard, the vast majority of all possible mutations are not beneficial, is what I've heard. I don't, I don't yes. remember, you know, I don't know what the numbers yes. are to that. I don't know if you do. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I remember reading that, and that has been one of the fundamental principles of natural selection, which is that you have random mutations, and then the ones that survive are, uh, you know, become the future generations, and that's why there's speciation, you know. And I think the adaptive mutation folks would have a very big challenge in front of them uh, to in order to explain all the different capacities of uh, speciation that we see out there. Sure. So all the different animals who live, you know, at the bottom of the ocean and who have all these different forms... And you you would really have a lot of explaining to do about if if all mutation or if majority of the mutation is adaptive mutation, then you know how do we get to that? Because it's easier to explain with random mutation. We also have literature around how the selection mechanism works, um, the environmental pressures, and you know all the other uh, sort of principles that we know in, in natural selection are leveraged on this idea of random mutation. So. I'm not sure how it would affect all of those things. Sure. I mean, I would certainly say that there's probably an element of both. And usually when you're talking about science, when you have one extreme on one end, one on the other, they're, they're usually both somewhere in the middle to right, you know? Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you the beginning of where that would be, but from what I understand of epigenetic markers and how, you know, behaviors can in fact change genetic expression, which over a few generations can change which ones are passed on, mm. uh, germline type stuff, um, I can see a case for microevolutionary changes um, through adaptive mutations, but I can I would certainly see that um, when you have such vast deviations of because to me like micro uh, ad- adaptive mutations would make sense to continue to better adapt to the same type of environment, but it wouldn't necessarily explain somebody rapidly or drastically changing their environment as a species, such as the first uh, amphibian. Right, mm-hmm. you know that's sort of conjecture, but yeah, I mean, I think the 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 people right now, I think if the people that I've had conversations with, like my professor, biology professor, like if I were to talk to them about it, I think they would say that um, the changes are incremental, and so we're not going from you know a single cellular animal to a, 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 an animal that functions in an environment, and the changes are so gradual that it would be hard to draw a line even to say, you know, here's an amphibian and here's not. Sure. So it would, that's what their response would be, that the changes are so incremental for, and that is supported by some of the fossil evidence that we have. I was just about to ask you about the fossil record. Like awesome. Yeah. That, that's great. So yeah, and, uh, I guess that's one thing too, is like a sort of layman's argument would be like, well, where are all the half snake, half fishes or whatever, but that... That goes with the assumption that it happens that quickly or noticeably at all, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a very old argument. Um, you know, where 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 is the you know half monkey, half whatever? Because everything is connected, they think that there's a half sure halfway point between everything, but it's not like that. I think you know Richard Dawkins has an interesting uh, analogy in terms of um, how you age in your life. And it's the aging process is so incremental that 
you know, what day, what day are you a child and what, you know, when are you a half child, half adult? Sure. That day, that day is never. Uh, I mean, technically, formally, we say, yeah, 18 years old, whatever, but in, in a, you know, in a geological time, it's, it's, uh, or, or in a chronological time, it's not really, uh, that obvious. So it's the same way with natural selection as far as we know right now is that the changes are very incremental. Sure. Makes sense to me. Um, earlier you mentioned, I'm switching gears a bit here just out of raw curiosity, but you mentioned sort of um, aggression for as an example of something that could be adaptive in certain contexts. So we've gone from like a general discussion of evolutionary psychology, the sort of doctrine and understanding behind it and what we know so far, which is awesome. I'm really glad to have you doing this for us. Let's take it in now to sort of like practical human life and sort of like that idea of aggression, for example, how does that fit in as far as adaptation, maladaptive, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so aggression is an interesting topic because uh, it's one of those things that we see all over the animal kingdom. You know, if you, if you were thinking about something like mathematical thinking, it would be really hard to find examples of that uh, and make a case for that being an adaptation. But some of the... Uh, more primary uh, behavioral mechanisms like you know reproduction and aggression and those kinds of so we're kind of lucky that that we're talking about that uh, and the way it is adaptive uh, or at least the way we understand it is adaptive is aggression you know you see aggression being used as a behavioral mechanism across the animal kingdom in order to uh, gain resources acquire resources by force so in the chimpanzees, you could uh, you could find examples very easily of one chimpanzee aggressing against the other in order to get access to food or in order to get access to uh, territory or uh, you know sexual access, things like that. So it's a it's a behavioral mechanism. It's a capacity that exists, uh, much like the capacity that we have to move our fingers in a certain way, the capacity that we have to locomote at a certain, uh, for locomotion capacity, for locomotion movement. And so there is, these are, that's the basic framework to think, I think, about, or at least the way we think about aggression or some of those primal behaviors is that is that they are behavioral representations uh, of uh, evolution or natural evolution by natural selection just the way that we have physical representations. Certainly. You know, when we talk about a, a topic like aggression being adaptive in some instances, this would probably be a little bit less so than something as touchy as, like, um, race being an adaptation or not adaptation. But I'd still imagine that aggression has to be a topic that might require some, like, political light treading in the mm. university environment. Mm. Because when you think of how, like, we have this sort of um, social justice narrative in most of our um, higher institutions, it would. I wonder how the IRBs would react to attempting to show a case for aggressive aggression being a sometimes positive thing. Yeah, you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, I don't think that's impossible at all. I think it's very likely that we will see some controversy about something like that in the near future at the rate uh, at which the things are going. And that's unfortunate. Um, I mean, like, you know, in a, in a research context, you know, you, you talk about all these behaviors because you're just trying to understand them. And 
it, it's possible that they may have some positive, you know, but that's not to, uh, yeah, that's not to make a rule that, that you should aggress against other people. Certainly. If, if people use it like that, and I know there are people who do that, and they say, you know, this is a natural, you know, instinct or whatever, so I'm going to do it. Uh, that's a that's a natural fallacy, and that has no has nothing to do with the exploration of aggression or anything like that. So Absolutely. that would be an interesting uh, argument to make, and I'm sure that's going to happen sometime. And you know, I know you asked uh, sort of my interest in evolutionary psychology. And mm-hmm. one thing that I absolutely love about this macro theory is that, and this is in contrast to what I feel to be sort of, in my personal opinion, a destructive element of academia, mm-hmm. um, is this sort of obsession with postmodernism, social constructivism, this idea that um, people, if they all agree on something in a socio-political context, can make it the established narrative of reality. Yes, yeah. And I, I'm okay with that until it contradicts with observable physics, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of the beauty of having a biological origin to what you want to learn, because you can say, I understand you guys would like it to be this, but mm-hmm. part of science is checking your delusions and dogmas and looking at presented facts, right? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting topic, and I'm kind of surprised of how much we have in common to talk about, but... I have had this conversation with, with so many different people uh, in so many different contexts. I was a part of a philosophy club in graduate school, and you know we had people from different backgrounds, uh, both science and others. And this was a conversation we would have a lot of times because, given my background, I would talk about evidence, and they would you know they would come up with arguments that were uh, postmodernist or you know basically denial of that kind of investigation. And uh, even even in, within my uh, immediate colleagues, there's, there 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 were those questions, and it's and it's kind of interesting because I think they, like you were saying, they have a different um, direction of thinking. So they come in with you know thinking, okay, how am I going to improve the situation uh, in this uh, in this particular event? And they will say, well, if if, if people are claiming, for example. Um, some kind of biological determinism, then the answer to that would be to just destroy this idea or this thinking of, about evidence and science at its roots and challenge them to, to you know, realize that that is not the right way to think about things. And that's obviously, I, I don't think any serious person takes that view. Serious By serious, I mean, you know, people who have to make contributions to society in a realistic way, sure. technology, engineering, medical science, None of those fields would exist without, uh, you know, having sort of a logical positivist uh, perspective. If uh, that's not to say that postmodernism has nothing interesting in it, but I think it's interesting to talk about in certain ways, and it, it has been. But I think people misapply it in a lot of ways to problems that are not uh, necessarily improved by postmodernistic perspectives. Sure. And I can respect where it's coming from as a reaction to some unethical practices of people who chose to dedicate their time and energy to awful things, right? Ethnic cleansing, uh, atomic bombs, you know, chemical weapons, these sorts of things. I can totally understand the desire to make certain observations off limits. Um, That being said, I I feel like 
when it becomes unrestrained and the sort of protect the um, presiding doctrine of an organization's political interest at the cost of observable reality, it yeah, can become yeah, problematic. Yeah. I agree. Uh, and, and essentially, it's they're just postponing the problem. Sure. Right? Someone because, will find it. I mean, you're not, if you say that, you know, let's not talk about science because, you know, in a postmodernistic framework, uh, all of these ideas are biased and none of this is true in, a, in an objective way, blah, blah, blah. Then, you know, that's not to say that an atomic bomb, bomb could never be made. Sure. Or it could never be used. You're just basically saying that there would be other reasons why that would be used instead of scientific reasons. Sure. So it, It's uh, kind of like, do you want to put your head in the sand or do you want to put your hands in the dirt, you know? Yeah, exactly. And this, which is why I said in practical life, when you have to make real contributions to improve society, postmodernism will not help you in that case. Sure. Yeah. And again, it's... I want to express respect even for doctrines I don't agree with. It's just um, when you see an extremist dogma, it's dangerous in any place, but especially when it controls the institutions that are responsible for higher order learning. Yeah, um, that is definitely, I mean, that's a bigger problem than, than I think even uh, my pay grade uh, allows me to talk about. Sure. Because I'm, I'm actually interested in people who are postmodernists. I have I know many people in person who, who come from that background, postmodernism, and they are interested in that stuff. They have very interesting ideas, and I love to talk about them. But you know, applying that and all that is that's a very different. Uh, there's a very, we're talking about very different risk levels. Oh, certainly, and you know, it's also an element of we have to watch our mouths as well, um, for yeah. sure. You know, and that's not to say if we express that we don't agree that we're going to be hunted down and uh, expelled, but. Yeah. Um, you're facing a lot of leverage when you disagree with the prevailing idea, you know? Yes, absolutely. I mean, just to talk about it in a, in a theoretical way, I think I remember from the time when I used to attend uh, some of these philosoph philosophy clubs and so many other people, I think the biggest issue uh, that I have in a technical sense about postmodernism is that they are, they are con I think some of the arguments are confused about subjectivism and relativism so they think that because something is is um, subjective it has to be it has to be relative so in, in the sense that if I am experiencing consciousness in, in a subjective way uh, it cannot be observed by in an objective way no matter what you do and so everything that you say about consciousness is therefore relative uh, because it's coming through a subjective channel and I think this is the conversation that I've had with uh, other, you know, people who studied philosophy of science. That that is an interesting that is an interesting thing to think about because you can be you can be subjective about things in the way that you experience them, but you can still measure them in an objective way and derive inferences about it. Sure. And, you know and I think one 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 final thing I'll say about this is you know, I remember the example from. Uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, book, um, in which he talks about, I think very very early on in the book, he talks about uh, how a how a fish's perspective uh, from a from a fish in a bowl perspective, the fish could still mathematically derive the reality that it's in, even though it's observing its reality in a subjective way. Certainly. And I and I would invite people to read up that paragraph. 
you know, and it, it's interesting too. And I actually, the respect I do have for social constructivism, postmodernism, collect, you know, collective, um, what do you call it, consensus of reality. However, you want to look at that. Mm-hmm. I respect. It actually takes way more observation and work per se than just observing clear yes and no answers to reality. Yes. And I think that we don't have all those clear yeses and nos to all facts of reality yet. And for the things that we don't know, that's a wonderfully explorative um, perspective to take, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And I think most science students and people who are interested in that kind of thing uh, would agree with that. Yeah. And then the beauty of it, though, and this is where I think it's a little silly that these doctrines are fighting when the job of a social constructivist could be made much easier if that which is easily observable and pretty well established in observable, measurable reality is kind of um, accepted to close in that hole of work that a social constructivist might have to, um, we'll say, uh, speculate about, you know? And yeah, so it, so yeah it, I think yeah. I agree with that. I mean, it's it's kind of ironic. Uh, it's kind of sad that we don't have somebody who's a social constructivist in, in this argument. So I don't want to misrepresent their ideas too much. Sure. But I think I agree with what what you were saying in that they could be working together. Yeah, and that's interesting. So uh, with the idea of the perspective of biologically based theoretical doctrines, mm-hmm. can sort of give solid or as close to solid as we currently know answers to people who might be overwhelmed by information and possibilities. Yes. So taking taking that idea, let's take this to human life now. What are some, you know, observable realities that a human being can know and act upon for better performance? Um, I think in, in, when I started studying evolution psychology, it was amazing to me because I just thought if I had known these things in high school and if I had known these things in, in primary school and secondary school, it would have improved my life uh, you know, unimaginably. Sure. Amazingly well. You know, because um, it kind of, it basically it gives you a level of understanding about what's going on. Sure. And I think going back to your previous example about how you were talking about the, the social norms that you observed, you know, in high stress, high risk, uh, high consequence situations, things like that, uh, and elsewhere, I think uh, it, it kind of really does give you a really good understanding of those things, at least in a framework kind of way that you kind of understand that you, who human beings are and why we think in a certain way and why we treat our environment or why we think of an environment in a certain way, how we interact with other people, what are the thoughts that we get and why we get them. And it's just amazing how many different uh, behaviors, observable behaviors that, that are so easily explained in an evolutionary paradigm, at least in a broader sense, uh, I don't mean to get into the nitty-gritty of sort of like, you know, predictability and all that kind of stuff, but at least in a, a general understanding sense, you could, it's so much better, I think, to uh, know that the evolution paradigm exists and 
that explains a lot of these behaviors instead of what otherwise people do, which is they start constructing miniature theoretical models for all of these things. So what happens with their you know, significant other in their homes is one very, very small theoretical model. Sure. What happens with their boss at work is a very different, completely unrelated theoretical model. And so they have millions of these different theoretical models which are very different to comprehend uh, without really knowing how they are connected to each other. Well, Chinma, we've and, all got to write a dissertation, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, but that's, you know, so that's that was my most interesting, uh, I think, use of evolutionary models, how, how I use it in personal life. Sure. Is it really just give you really good insight onto your own thoughts and other people's thoughts. Um, and it's really useful, I think. Well, what about you, though? Where do I start? Um... So even before I became a therapist, you know, the adaptation, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a rougher urban environment for a large part of my childhood years. And you learn the hard way that, yeah, aggression and physical strength and sort of strategic planning pay off, right? Yeah. yeah. And then um, as I grew up and became a soldier, you know, Talk about uh, values that don't serve you in modern life. Uh, mm, right. You know, to put it bluntly, mm. killing people, making alliances, and taking their stuff. Um, yeah. and, and that's not to say that's what we did. It's just sort of the, the role of war in general, right? Mm, right. These things don't really serve you in a civil society that's mm. put, a, put a cap on these sorts of behaviors. Yeah. But it's so easy to see, like, you know... One, one flight to another part of the world and a media block later and, you know, you'd think, it's like, wow, we just regressed in social values by thousands of years in yeah. an instant, right? Yeah, that's a very interesting way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and so you look at it and, like, aggression, you know, and you learn, too, with aggression that the best uh, defense is a good offense because the longer you refuse to take action, mm-hmm. your chemicals start to go from adaptive to maladaptive, right? And your yeah. increased muscle uh, mobility and strength and your increased visual acuity and focus, um, sens- reduced sensitivity to pain, increased energy, these sorts of things, um, endorphins flooding for pain relief. These, yeah. if you don't act upon them in a physical way, they start to overtake you and shut you down. You know? yeah, absolutely, yeah, because your body's preparing for stress. Sure. If you don't use it, then you lose it, kind of thing. And, you know, even, you'd think that, uh, in my personal experience, even more so than, say, a gunfight, um, which is extremely rare in my experience, um, usually it was just rolling over um, undetonated ordnance. But in one on one unarmed combatants, such as in, say, Muay Thai, um, that principle really comes into play. Because no matter how scared you are, you can generally make yourself small and squeeze a trigger a few times while trying to expose as little of your body as possible, right? But when you're engaging in um, strikes, punches, kicks, elbows, knees, um, trying to take someone's uh, spinal balance, throwing them to the ground, locking arms, trying to go for a choke and say mixed martial arts, the whole, um, you become really mindful of your body and where you're coordinated and where you're not coordinated. And you can fear takes on a like a, a thick, uh, palpable sensation when those mm. chemicals start to take over, right? Mm. That's 
that's very interesting. I mean, I, I don't have any direct experience with these. I, I do watch some, some MMA occasionally. But I do know that those those guys are, uh, at least the commentators and some of the other people, like Joe Rogan and all these people, they talk about the systems level, uh, uh, you know, principles in these in these cases. Sure. About, you know, like you were saying, controlling and strategizing and things like that. And it's interesting how that uh, relates to the physiological uh, response. Sure. And, you know, there's other aspects than just aggression, but, you know, uh, when, it ta- when it comes to mate choice... Uh, so the, the implications socially, physically, are just so profound, and uh, we could go on about that forever. I'd be happy to have you on uh, on another podcast to dive into just that topic about the many, many uses of applied evolutionary psychology. But to focus a bit, let's talk, I could talk to you about my clinical experience. Yeah, I'm curious to hear how you, uh, you know, plan to or have already used uh, evolutionary principles in your practice. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, all, it's an ever-evolving uh, <laughs> process. Yeah, and, sure. um, but so far, I've worked with mood disorders, personality disorders, uh, addiction. So when I say mood and personality, for the uh, people who aren't in the clinical world, I'm talking about uh, bipolar, um, major depression, which is not technically mood, you know, uh, anxiety type disorders. These are classified differently differently in the DSM. But basically, any kind of issue that affects someone's emotional state, right? So mood type disorders, particularly bipolar uh, disorder. Um, I've worked with personality disorders, particularly antisocial personality, and in more frequency, borderline personality disorder. Um, I've worked with addiction, both behavioral and substance. I've worked with anxiety. Um, And even you see evolutionary psychology kind of in the ways we've already talked about in my role as a fitness trainer or combat sports coach. Mm -hmm. But with the therapeutic aspect, a mood disorder, right? So someone could say, um, oh, I have a chemical imbalance and I'm bipolar, uh, and become very deterministic about it. But their visit to the psychiatrist was probably pretty short, uh, probably not very comprehensive about all the different domains of their lifestyle and history. And it may well be, and it's more often the case than not the case, can't give you numbers right now, but that someone with a disorder uh, psychiatrically, not counting something like schizophrenia, um, is that you can get a lot done if you change your lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's harped on about. And, of course, it's very easy for that to go very quickly into, like, hippie guru, woo-woo stuff. Mm-hmm. So to be careful with that, you know, how do you get someone to examine what to look at possibly changing, right? Yeah. And evolutionary psychology makes a wonderful framework of, like, okay... Um, you feel these intense bouts of mania or low energy or combination or cycling, right? Well, you know, these are the ways that these behaviors or emotions could have served you in the past. That's one application. Um, Being manic will make you a particularly good hunter-gatherer while you have the energy, right? Um, Or let's say by to take it the other way, it's something to the effect of, well, um, have you considered how the gap between the things that trigger your emotional reward system from a primitive standpoint don't line up to how you're currently living. You know? And that's a, that's a real big theme. Like, if someone has a body that's designed to overcome challenges, to eat a certain diet, to move their body in certain ways and frequencies and intensities, to, be, to have a certain circadian rhythm, all these things that we already know, 
and it's not happening, how much gap is acceptable before their emotional health starts to uh, show consequence to that? So you, so have you actually seen a difference uh, in in your clients and your patients when uh, that point is kind of driven home? Of like in in the case of the mania example, do you actually see that it works? Absolutely. Uh, no, nothing's a hundred percent right, and this right. is only anecdotal. But um, when I take these principles, what really showed me that this needed to happen, this needed to be brought to light. I worked in something called an intensive outpatient um, set treatment center, which worked on uh, mood disorders and personality disorders. And it was very much a sort of end-of-the-line type place. It, generally, the clientele you got were people who um, would hit a psychiatric inpatient facility multiple times. Like, you're talking someone who might be in their 30s, but have already exhausted a lifetime of their insurance's um, psychiatric stays, right? Mm. So very hard cases, and, you know, people who might have attempted suicide 13, 14 times. So very, very, um, and, you know, when they reach this point, you're talking about people who generally don't have a whole lot of resources uh, financially, Mm. right? Mm. And so what happens is you have this Medicare-based treatment center, which to be perfectly honest, didn't have the best um, accountability for outcomes, right? Mm. Mm. Because according to the Medicare model, if you can at least keep someone in these intensive outpatient treatment centers, you're saving the um, constituents the cost of inpatient psychiatric care. I see. So as long as the IOP centers did that much, the performance Mm. was acceptable, you see. Right, okay, I see. But the downside is that very, very rarely would people um, that were in that deep of a spot on, on, say, you know, government-subsidized care, so to speak, very rarely would they achieve significant, lasting changes in their lifestyle, right? Mm, right. And when I got on board as a counselor, as a provisional counselor after graduation from my master's program, it was very fatalistic. It was very much like, a um, look, these people are, the best you can do is keeping them out of the hospital, uh, don't sweat it too much, that sort of stuff. And it was very disheartening because you had a sort of defeatist mindset among the staff, right? Mm. And this isn't universal, this isn't 100%, but it was certainly across the, the way the system was run, right? Yeah, yeah. And the difference, this is all pretty depressing to hear, especially if you're a taxpayer, especially if you care for people with mental health concerns. But yeah. the beauty of this was that, at least in my experience, when I introduced the value of eating healthy, of moving your body, of respecting your circadian rhythm, of practicing mindfulness in a regimented way that knew the connection between this part of the brain and that technique. When you start taking um, a framework that's every bit as much biological as it is um, theoretical, you really start to see results with people that you didn't see... um, with some kind of disconnected fatalist mentality. And also you had some people that did the standard cognitive therapies and did, they did it well by all theoretical accounts. It's just these are people whose limbic systems are so out of whack and their chemical levels, their body chemistry, their emotional state, it's so gone and so poorly regulated with an overabundance of psychiatric medication that there is no... Um, challenge to a particular cognition that can undo all that biochemical damage. Right. Right. 
So getting people to pay attention to the physical and to understand, and a big part about evolutionary psychology was very motivating for people because these are people who up to this point, nothing's been working for them, right? And so even though it's really hard convincing somebody who's spent years in therapy and gone to a psychiatric center 20 times or 10 times or whatever, it's very hard to convince them to try again. You know? Yeah. But if you say, look, this is different than what you're used to. This is about um, something backed by biology that if you do these things, your odds greatly increase of experiencing these results. Right? Mm-hmm. And the results were phenomenal. And th- I don't know if it's representative. I couldn't speak to all the IOPs across the country, of course. I've only worked in like a few. Mm-hmm. But at least in my practice, the results were so phenomenal as to make me skeptical at first. Um, but yeah, it stuck. Um, and these principles help people really drive forward. And to my understanding, a large number of them have never gone back. To well, I mean, that's, an, very, that's a very interesting story. Um, have you thought about conducting sort of formal research on, on this type of thing? Because I think this, this is, if this effect holds up, it will be really useful for a lot of uh, people in therapy and practitioners as well. Sure, and you know, it really would. It's just, to tell you the truth, and this might be why there's not so much research on this, Mm. and this is, I know this might come across as cold, but generally, nobody wants to end their career uh, working with difficult schizophrenic episodes and chronic suicidality and the really hard cases, right? It's almost sort of um, in the trenches, pay your dues when you're young and get out of there quick, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know, I've... I had the same issue uh, at uh, the APA conference that I went to this year. Um, but, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute. But, yeah, I understand the issue. Sure. So I would really value the research. It's just it's not something that energizes me to do, to be perfectly honest. And if you're going to commit yourself to such a really – and I know I'd have to put my money where my mouth is because I'm claiming some pretty wild things. Yeah. Uh, and that has very limited value anecdotally. But, and I would really want to contribute in any way that I could, short of dedicating my life to something that would take energy rather than give it, right? Yeah, yeah, I understand. I think that another alternative you could consider is uh, if you get hold of, like, a university student, you know, close by, either in clinical or, you know, a related experimental field, uh, they are sometimes looking for practical, you know, data that they can get from real life. And if they're interested in this kind of thing, it would be their responsibility to, you know, come up with sort of measurement models and, uh, you know, really to, to, to understand this thing in their framework. And you, you could just be doing what you want to do in general. Sure. And, you know, there's, uh, you bring up something I didn't even think about until now, but a lot of these centers know that what they're doing doesn't work, right? And so there is this resistance to being held to scientific accountability, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, that. how would you navigate a system that profits off of, because not only do they not get penalized for doing poor work systemically, they get rewarded when people stay for longer times and get build more insurance money. Yeah, that's a systemic issue. I mean, that's a problem of incentives. There's so many, there's so many bodies involved. I think in this case that it would be, it would be a challenge to change. You know, there's a lot of other things uh, that are challenging other than just pursuing an idea. You have to have a lot of luck and horsepower behind you in order to pursue the 
the idea that you want to study. But I think going back to the the observation and the theoretical insights you had, if I may, sure, it's interesting to me because uh, when I was studying clinical psychology and you know when I was this was years ago, and when I was kind of like trying to train myself to do those things, I know that one of the things that struck me was uh, that a lot of these therapies and uh, models, clinical models of uh, intervention or, or therapy or counseling heavily relied on how much insight the patient had or the client had into their own condition. Sure. And that's kind of curious to me because I remember talking to you know, experienced uh, professionals and clinicians and, and they would say, okay, this patient is likely to recover from the very first meeting. And I would say, how do you know that? And they would say that they have an insight into their condition, which makes it much faster for you to recover. Uh, and I'm curious about your, you know, uh, case of you know applying the the evolutionary framework and the biological uh, causation framework in order to gain, in order to give them sort of insight into their condition, sure. because it seems to me that that is kind of similar to, you know, for example, if somebody else. Would say, I mean, this is going to be, this is going to sound like a crazy example, but in case of Freud, if Freud, if you were sitting in Freud's case, and if Freud was telling you that I'm the doctor, I'm a physician, and I'm telling you that this is the reason why, you know, you're experiencing anxiety or X, Y, Z or whatever, right? And it's because it's your, you have repressed thoughts or you have an ego that is like inflated or you have some, you know, issues with the superego, whatever. And I wonder what the mechanism is that, because in, in his case, it clearly worked, right? Because he would cite that as evidence saying when the patient was told, then their symptoms went away. Uh, in some of the other paradigms as well, I'm sure that people use this kind of thing, like, okay, here's why you're happening. For example, I know back in India, we, we had a lot of clinicians who were practicing, uh, you know, yoga, and they kind of use that sort of... Um, you know, awareness, consciousness sort of, sort of model and said, you know, here's why you, this is an issue. Here's why you have an issue. Sure. And suddenly you kind of get this insight. So I think that across the board, it's interesting, uh, at least to my naive eye, that this type of thing would work. You know, uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Only thoughts, right? Because I haven't done any particular, you know, I haven't studied this aspect in particular, but when you look at any kind of principle, if something's better than what you had, it can lead to improvement, right? Mm. So I guess it's almost an element of like, um, you know, from a marksmanship perspective, if I was aim, if let's say I was hunting, and I was aiming for the the head of the animal to bring it down, but let's say I got its shoulder, right? Mm. Mm. It would be close enough to still eat. <laughs> in a very crude way to put it, you know. So right. like, let's say um, psychoanalysis from Freud, maybe he didn't quite get the scientific mechanisms perfectly correct. Mm -hmm. And I think this is how people who are practicing with widely outdated models can still be pretty effective, you know. Because as long as it brings a client closer to what they had, right. to, the, you know, to the origin, it's still a positive thing. I... The moment you say good enough in science... You hold advancement, right? Mm. That's an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, I mean, 
mean, the, the insight aspect, which seems to be the common thread across these different theoretical explanations for people's behaviors and, uh, you know, telling somebody, here's what's going on and then this is what you do to change it or repair it, uh, that seems to work for many different reasons. And certainly, I mean, I think the, the prevailing uh, literature at the, of the day I, I would say that has a has a role to play. Like today, if you said you know something about Freudian psychoanalysis, people would say, you know, you're crazy or I don't trust you or whatever. Oh, you'd be surprised, Shinmei. It's still going really? on. <laughs> wow. Okay. I yeah. wasn't. See, this is why I don't have any idea what goes on yeah. in clinical settings. It's, it's rare, but it still happens, and it's it's mm. ugh, you know. Still, yeah, I'm sure there's some yeah. Freudians out there trying to salvage uh, some of the work. Yeah. Uh, you know, over time. Because, you know, from a research perspective, you don't really have the patience or the energy to go on and discredit every idea. Certainly. So you kind of say, okay, we've done enough, you know, this doesn't seem to hold up, let's go to the next one. But there's some residual ideas left in there which still might fuel the fire for a few years. Yeah. One, uh, I talk about this a little bit in the first episode of my podcast, but one um, limitation, I love the counseling field. I feel like of all the professions that do applied therapy, I feel like they're very good at it. Um, that's why I chose to go into that direction. Um, but I feel like a big flaw in our training is that we regard all um, psychotherapy theoretical orientations to be equal, right? And the justification for doing that is a couple of um, person-centered type articles that say the relationship is 60% of the outcome or whatever, and because that holds some validity, it excuses someone from trying to clean up the last 40%, right? Mm. And I have a personal issue with that, but you kind of have to go along with the way that's run if you want to survive the agencies and you know systems you're in, right? Yeah, that was one of the big issues that I had when I was stuck in clinical psychology. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I mean, this speaks more to my shortcoming, but I had to make a decision at the time that I, I don't want to do this anymore because if people see that they, they were more concerned about and this is not a right or wrong thing but their their orientation was more about you know just find whatever helps and stick with it sure and instead of like really thinking about the ideas from a research or factual perspective or theoretical perspective and that's that's the reason I kind of had to switch from my previous clinical work to uh, other research-based Sure. And, you know, the thing is we need each other. We absolutely need – clinicians absolutely need people who have the time to do research to learn how to improve accuracy and precision of results, right? Yes, absolutely. And I know. We absolutely need you guys. And the fact that we're not in touch – like, we should have – counseling departments should have psychologists on speed dial. You know, I don't understand why it's not happening. Like, we should share articles and, like, really have a direct connection yeah. I mean, I mean, it's idealistic, I think, and I think the real problem, I, from my, from my at least experiences, is that you, I don't think people are comfortable relying on somebody else's expertise to make their own decisions in some way. Well, and you've also got the social constructivism piece um, getting into clinical therapy, and it has been for a long, long time. Yes, I'm uh, aware. Yeah. And so again, you go back to that issue of. Well, just because the majority of people in a field agree that something's okay, that doesn't change the objective reality of this input creates more effective and efficient output, right? Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. So I think it's really important to, like, sort of be willing to be wrong, you know, that's so important in science or in practice of anything, is be wrong, adapt, and improve. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, that perspective is shared by a few people who, who then either end up doing science or something else, but I think from my experience, most people who end up doing counseling or, or therapy are more interested in helping people. Sure. This is this is sort of a it happens to be out there kind of idea that oh you know this happens to be this thing that people think about behavior and behavioral science, but my main goal is to help you and this is how I'm going to help you. Yeah. So that is I think one of the reasons for the gap, just the background with which they approach the subject. Sure. Because I I have this conversation with people. I tell them you know here's things that that, that are going on right now. Right. If you open a textbook uh, about these kind of things. Here's all the research that is documented, which shows this, that, that, and the other kind of thing. And this is where we are at crossroads on these issues, things like that. But they don't seem to be interested in that. They will say, well, you know, how do I, why do I care about it? I just want to help people. Sure. Not realize, and it's such an egotistical statement to say, I want to help people my way or in the way that I prefer to do so comfortably. Right. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. I agree that that's an issue. I don't. I don't really know how to change that. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I don't. I, I, yeah. You appear to be instantly as a monster if you if you say that. Absolutely. You, know, you, you yeah. can't even disagree um, because you will be probably in some way intellectually attacked. And if there's no uh, legitimate perspective to dismantle your idea, it'll probably become ad hominem. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know. Um, so, just I know we're running up on time here. I've kept you a long time. You've been extremely generous with your time. We're coming up on an oh, hour and a half. Yeah, this is this is great. I don't I don't mind going for a few more minutes if you want. Sure. I want to kind of take this to uh, future research, right? So, as I understand it, uh, sociobiology, evolutionary psychology, has done a really good job of sort of beginning to study decision making um, mm-hmm. origins and kind of social performance and task performance and implications for business, implications for organizations, mm-hmm. but I, I'm wondering, and I don't actually know this very well, how developed is the research that sort of shows how a modern, a person in a modern industrial country could meet the um, neurochemical benchmarks through engaging in what particular types of behavior? Did that make sense? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's an interesting way that you put it like that. Um... I'm not sure if I have ever come across any neurochemical benchmarks. Like the uh, flow state research kind of thing? Like, we've done flow state research, but I don't know how well it's developed in the field to know, like, these behaviors get you flow states, um, and then evolutionary origin-wise, like, how much of it has been figured out that because we used to hunt, overcoming a challenge and being athletic is good. I just made that up. But you see that sort of, like, connection? I don't know how well that's been made yet. Yeah, I think the challenge over there is um, a lot of these things are so variable, you know, by culture, by your environment, by uh, historical factors, that it's really hard to even theoretically think about what a benchmark would be or could be. Sure. You know, so because like we were saying before, it's a process of aging, right? If you were to create benchmarks in the early process of aging and say, you know, this should be the benchmark that you should have in your life for whatever physical activity, uh, you know, the physical activity that you had on, 
you know, the, the you know, twelve thousandth day of your life or something like that. Sure. It would be a little, you know, I mean, I understand that some of it could be better than the other, but it would be a little of a, a bit of an exaggeration to say that that should be a benchmark, because there are other things that are changing that serve you a better purpose at, at a different time. Sure. Um, you know, so it's I'm not really aware of too, too much on that on that on that front, but that seems to be my first take to that on that idea. Uh, of a neuro of a neurochemical benchmark, right. uh, we know that there's deviations from normality, right? So we know, like in terms of like sugar or insulin or things like that. I mean, okay, hey, here's this is a deviation because obviously it's over 120 or something like that. Right, and it's an interesting of, idea to think about that in terms of like for serotonin or dopamine or anything like that. You could have neurochemical benchmarks. Sure, and then how do you know really? Like we can we can have conjecture that you know because someone was physically active, had a better diet. Um, had more versatility of thinking patterns just to survive all these tasks, we could guess that they might have hit flow states more often, right? Have the right anandamide, dopamine, endorphin, serotonin, norepinephrine, but we don't really know because you can't get that out of a fossil. You know? So I'm wondering, though, too, it's like, and to me, as a, as a clinician, what I want to know more from research than anything else is how can we leverage these details, learn more, and then use them to inspire um, the most happiness and, you know, satisfaction across as many people as we can, right? Right. I mean, it's a, that's a challenge. I think a lot of people are working on that. You know, economists very often talk about well-being and how to improve that. And it's an ongoing debate because we don't really understand in its entirety what that means. Sure. Um, so... It's that's something that for us to first understand, and then we can, you know, think about controlling that. I mean, it's true that we can go in the general direction. Sure. Uh, you know, in terms of saying yes, poverty, you know, is definitely not going to improve your. I mean, this reminds me of uh, Sam Harris's concept of uh, the moral landscape. So it's some, something similar, and you can you can kind of say it, the happiness landscape or something like that. Like yes, definitely, this is not making you happier. So you want to go in this direction. Uh, we know that exercising every day, I don't know if it's safe to say, but exercising every day is not going to, you know, be terribly unproductive. Sure. Well, unless you overdo it and cause damage, but that notwithstanding, yeah. Yeah, uh, but overall, generally speaking, we know that it has positive effects, and we have a lot of studies documenting that. Sure. So, that will be an interesting, you know, uh, I think, framework yeah. for investigation in this uh, for this research. And then, you know, when you think of biology as our over-theory, right, um, or over science, I wonder how, um, you know, because it's so hard to say what happiness is, right? Mm. But then if we maybe take it from a neurochemical level of measuring those things that we've revealed to cause greater focus, greater feelings of positive regard, these sorts of things, those chemicals, mm. I'm wondering what it would look like to maybe begin to get some research on, you know, measuring the input intensity and sustainability of those chemicals in the right amounts based on different types of behavior frames or thinking frames, you know? And yeah, and that's, that's curious. Um, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things that I will think about, you know, just because we are, we're talking about this and it's interesting to me, one of the interesting things in that is is that the, there's a physiological sort of correlate for yeah. happiness, right? Something's going on in your body when you're happy. But then there's the cognitive experience of happiness, which is that people can consciously tell you that they're happy and they can make themselves happy. Sure. 
So this is going from a stimulus that is in the environment to their minds and then to their to their rest of their body, uh, creating an effect that they call happiness, and that it's the interpretation of happiness. Sure. So to this, all the, I mean, we know that from the emotion sort of literature that there is at least two things to this emotion. One is the physiological response, and then there is the cognitive interpretation of that response, Certainly. which tells you that what you're happy or not. And I think that will be an interesting challenge when we, when we obviously, when we get there, very far from now. But to get into that argument or conversation about, you know, in terms of happiness, so is it just the physiological uh, system? Which, when you when you trigger, is that enough happiness, or does it, does the person have to believe that that they have been made happy because of X Y Z reason from the environment and based on their personalities and their desires and things like that? Sure, I think defining the construct would probably be the mo- or the variables would be the most difficult part of that research. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's really a very, it's I think it's actually a very difficult philosophical um, discussion. Um, two questions for you. What would you want listeners to take away most out of this interview? And then, how can people contact you uh, to sort of connect with you and help you continue your work? Yeah, I mean, so this has been fantastic for me, too. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing uh, so many different stories and interesting perspectives on these things. Certainly a lot to think about. Um, I think to answer your question, I would say the, the, the thing to take away from this, I think, would be... You know, just the attitude that you take towards science, I think is is the I think that's something that I think really came out of this conversation. And I think a lot of times people expect simple answers uh, or simple tips to come out of uh, scientific research, and they just want to know what is true and what isn't. And you know, as a practitioner or as researchers, we know that it's more complex than that. Sure. But then they they kind of either believe very flimsy articles or they go on the opposite uh, side of things and, and start saying that, oh, science is nonsense or, you know, scientists are just biased or, or none of that is believable and I'm going to believe something else. Sure. And, and I think that that is, both of those are equally dangerous and to, to develop an attitude of what science is is the middle ground here, which is, you know, that we know that as a process Science is helpful, and it, it has created so much positive impact on our civilization. Uh, but at the same time, realize that science is done by human beings, and to identify the issues with that particular process and when it's relevant, and things like that, to to, to take that with a, with a little bit of skepticism, uh, you know. But at, at, at the same time, value the process of science and objective uh, observation and things like that. Sure. Um, that is, I think, the attitude about science is what I would really love for users to take out of this uh, conversation. And if they want to reach out to me, um, you know, feel free to email me. I have a, I have a little website on which I share my uh, my research if I'm if I'm publishing something. Uh, so you can find me on the internet, and uh, my, you know, my email ID. I can I can either send it to you. You can share it with. Sure. If you wanted, uh, I'll put all that in the show notes. But if you want to just sort of say the easiest way to get a hold of you for people that are just listening, so yeah, just, just send me a message on my website. You can just search for my website. Uh, I have a website on Weebly for, with my first name and last name Chinmayarate. So just send me a message. You know, if you have to, if you want to share some thoughts or uh, 
any other ideas about stuff to think about. I would really love that. Great. And maybe you can get some research participants in the future out of this. Yeah, that's always the hope, right? Sure. Uh, Chinbei, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor um, having you with us today or tonight and then, you know, learning your perspective a little bit and sort of seeing your measured approach um, and also the sort of compassion that you take with this data that you take in and how to compassionately yet effectively move the, the dial of science forward. So, and then the humility with which you approach that really impresses me as well. Likewise, I mean... Like I said before, you had very interesting, you know, you have a very interesting vantage point, and I'm really glad the way that you are uh, interesting, the way that you're using it to advance uh, your work and, uh, and the impact that you create on other people. So this has been fantastic. Thank you for, for having me. It was really fun. All right, Shinbei. Take care. And thank you guys Thanks. for listening. Thank you for joining us today on the Therapy Evolve podcast. We at Paragon Wellness welcome your comments, questions, concerns, and suggestions for improvement. Feel free to contact us at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or drop us a comment at facebook.com slash paragonwellness. And always, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us become noticed for better or for worse. While I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not meant to be taken as clinical intervention. If you are experiencing considerable emotional or lifestyle difficulty, it is highly encouraged that you contact a local wellness professional. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.